0: Well good morning, I want to welcome you again to Central Presbyterian where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that all of you experience that work of Jesus as you're here with us in the community of faith today. We're working our way studying the book of Galatians and this morning we're going to study chapter 3 verses 10 to 14 and all the Bible scholars say this is a really difficult uh, passage and they have disagreement about what it exactly means. Lots of Old Testament quotes in this passage, and even a scholar like R.C. Sproul says he's not exactly sure what Paul's getting at here. So we're probably not going to solve every question in your minds today, but the big idea is this, self-reliance is met with a curse, but Savior-reliance is met with blessing. Blessing. Paul's speaking to Christians. We may hear that message and think he's talking to non-believers, but he's speaking to Christians, those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they still struggle with self-reliance. And we struggle too. I know that I have a problem with it. It's so easy to think that our gifts and experiences, we think it's our hustle that makes the world go round, even including in our spiritual lives. It's almost like an addiction to self for religious people. And Paul stages an intervention for the Galatian Christians, for you and for me, because his grace changes everything. Do you rely on self or do you rely on the Savior? Let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Lord, we ask that you would send the Spirit to open our eyes to your Word. Help us to see Jesus. And follow after him as disciples, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God will stand forever. An acquaintance of mine, Dane Ortland, has written a number of books lately, and in one of them, he writes this about the life of faith. He said, Christianity is the un-religion. It turns our religious instincts on their heads. He wrote, the ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by submitting our wills agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations but only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure christianity is the unreligion he wrote because it is the one faith whose founder tells us not to bring our doing but our need He's right. And that's what the Apostle Paul is after here in this text this morning about bringing our doing or self-reliance in the Christian life. It's the easiest, most natural thing in the world in our flesh to live with self-reliance. Whether it's in times of peace or times of crisis, where do you look to make your world work? So often it's By our gifting or our position, my my hustle, my working hard, my work ethic, my, my, my. I make my world work. I make my life complete. And I have a problem with that. I would suspect that many of you do too. I struggle not to live in a self-reliant fashion. But you know, self-reliance never works. It ends in us feeling trapped, us feeling chased, down and defeated by things that we can't control in our lives. And so Paul puts us back on the bedrock of truth, that as followers of Jesus, we rely upon our Savior, not on ourselves. So How does he get there in this text? Well, first, he says self-reliance brings curse. Look down at verse 10. He says, okay, if you're going to live by the law, you have to rely on law-keeping, then you have to do them all, he says in verse 10. If you're going to live by trying to be good, trying to keep the law, to gain God's blessing, if you're going to do that before the king, then you can't do that with just a few of his stipulations. He says, We must ab- always abide by them all. Do you catch that weight in verse 10? Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all. That abide is a present indicative verb, it means it's continuing, repetitive perpetual, over and over and over again. If you're going to verse 12, live by the law, you have to obey it all, all the time. Every detail of God's command. If you really want to live, if you want to receive blessing based on what you do, then you have to do all of God's commands perfectly always. And that's a standard that no one can keep. We can't keep this standard because our nature is broken. We are rebels. The truth is that we are depraved, a word that means that we have lives that are corrupted, that are bent by our sin. In fact, the theologians say that we are totally depraved. Now, that does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. In fact, no one is as bad as we could be because God's grace is at work restraining society but by total depravity we mean that there is no part of your life untouched by sin. Our mind is affected by our sin, our will, our heart, our bodies, our emotions, our affections are all bent according to sin. The totality of who we are is tainted with sin, It's tainted with radical self-interest and self-concern. So if Sin isn't just something that we occasionally do but corrupts everything that we are. Do we really think that we could clean up one part of our life and bring it to God as if we've now been obedient? Of course not. How about all the other parts of my life that are raging out of control with disobedience? The the truth about us is that we're responsible for our sin. And some of it we can see and recognize, and other parts of it we can't see and we can't recognize. And the longer we walk in the family of God, you will have other brothers and sisters show you things about your life, things that are broken, things that are sinful about your life that you never saw before. But we're responsible for it all. If we're going to keep keep up relationship with God based on our doing, we have to do it all. We have to know what's broken and keep all of God's law in our lives, and we can't do it. Neither can we fix ourselves. You see, verses 11 and 12, God's law that he gave was never designed to justify us. It was never designed to grant us standing before God. God gave the law as a mirror. In these perfect commands of God, we see ourselves as we truly are. It's like a mirror. And the law of God is a great mirror to show us our sin, show us who we are in light of God's perfection, it's a great mirror, but a terrible cleanser. For example, when you stand in front of your mirror in the morning and you want to wash your face, the mirror does a great job, maybe too good of a job, showing you all the blemishes. It <laughs> shows us everything that's wrong. It shows us where the, the dirt is so that we can wash it off in the sink with soap. But you don't use the mirror to wash your face, do you? You use soap. The law is a great mirror. It's a terrible cleanser. It did, God didn't give the law to cleanse us. He gave the law to show us our need for his cleansing. And so here's what a self-reliant people do when we see ourselves in that mirror. We don't like it. And so we try to distract what we, from what we see by trying to be really good. I'll do some good stuff to make myself seem not as bad as I seem in the, in the mirror of God's perfection. But friends, the bad news goes deeper than an occasional oops that we can make up for. Trying to dress up our sin by clinging to some good things that we occasionally do leads us to a self-reliance that has a false veneer of holiness. It's a plastic holiness. It's a, it's a, a, a self-righteous and fragile holiness that can't stand to see myself as I really am. Self-reliant people are unwilling to see themselves through the eyes of others, unwilling to see their sin through the eyes of others. Self-reliant people are hating to be wrong. Hate to be wrong. When self-reliant people look in the mirror, say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the obvious answer is me. I am. Because I'm so much better than those other people out there. But you see, if we hear that message and we think, but I'm not really that bad. <laughs> Why would I be liable to, to a curse compared to all those murderers out there? Why would I be cursed when you compare me to Putin and the invasion in Ukraine and killing all those civilians? What are you talking about? I'm deserving of God's curse. Or the thieves or the adulterers or name your favorite sin to hate. I'm better than them. But you see, it's not against any of them that our lives are compared We are responsible to the God who made us, who created us, and it's his righteous expectations of our lives that govern us. And when we are compared to God's holiness, every one of us falls woefully short. It brings curse. It brings separation from God. It brings alienation from God. So then if we are hopelessly bound up in that curse when we rely upon ourselves, where do we find life? Where do we find blessing? Paul leads us to the gospel of Christ. In verse 11, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in what? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Our place before God, our standing before God, our being beloved before our Father isn't based upon the ups and downs of the performance in your life but it's based upon Jesus taking your curse upon himself as he went to the cross, Jesus trading places with us. He was cursed so that we receive blessing. Relying on self only leads us to that place of curse and enslavement to our sin, but relying on our Savior brings blessing. Look again at verse 13. Paul said that Jesus was accursed, Not because he personally committed sin, he lived a perfectly righteous life, obeyed God in every way, yet our guilt was imputed to him. You've heard me use that word before, it's credited to him, it's legally transferred to him as Jesus went to the cross and he received the curse that was rightfully ours. Now in the Bible to be cursed is to be set outside the light of God's countenance. To be cursed is to be kept apart from God, to be cut off from God's presence and his blessing it's to be alienated from God the Father. And Jesus, it says, was cursed for us in verse 13. So perhaps we see a little bit more clearly Jesus' meaning on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't just feel forsaken. Jesus was forsaken. He came under the curse that was due to sinners like you and me. He received our judgment. He received our condemnation. He received the curse that we deserve for breaking his commands. And on that cross as Jesus hung there, his unbroken fellowship with the Father was broken. He received alienation from his Father, an alienation that properly belongs to us. The Father's face was turned away from the... The sweetness of that fellowship, the sweetness of that countenance, the sweetness of that light of the Heavenly Father was turned away from Jesus for He was cursed in judgment for us. He was cut off from God on our behalf so that we might live. You see, all that we deserve was laid upon the life of Jesus as He went to the cross. And by relying on that Savior who was punished in our place for our sin, we receive blessing from God. Luther wrote this of the life of faith as if it's from God's perspective. He wrote, if you wish to placate me, do not offer me your works and merits, but believe in Jesus Christ, my only son, who was born, who suffered, who was crucified, and who died for your sins. Then I will accept you and pronounce you righteous. That's what it means to be justified. To have all of our sins pardoned and Jesus' righteousness imputed, credited, given to us, received through faith alone. See, that life before God relies on faith. As Paul says in verse 11, the righteous will live by faith. And the more we grow into the Christian life of faith, the more dependent upon our Father that we become. We use that word a lot, faith. But What does it really mean? What is faith after all? If, we're, if we have faith and we bring blessing, what is it? Well, it involves three components. Faith involves knowledge. You can't really have faith in something or someone that you don't know or don't know about. So faith involves the content of the truth that God has revealed to us. There are things that are to be believed about, about the Lord. We read them in his word. There's a content to the faith, but faith is not simply knowledge. When we reduce faith to to knowing things, then we're tempted to become proud people because I know things that you don't. And we size people up, you belong, you don't. You, You have your theological ducks in a row, you certainly don't. We can't confuse simply knowledge with spiritual growth, with what it looks like to have standing before God. Faith involves more. Than knowledge, It involves knowledge, but it's something more. Faith also involves assent or conviction. We're called to know things about the Lord, but we have to believe them, to believe what is taught in God's Word as true. And it can be a really different thing to know what the Bible says about something versus believing that it's true. It can be a really hard thing. Some things are easy to know and hard to grant our conviction or our assent, or to believe that they really are true. For example, it's easy for us to say that God is sovereign, that God rules and reigns over the universe. We, saw, we see it taught in the Bible, that's his character, his rule is sovereign, but to believe that that is true, for that to become the conviction of your life, sometimes is much harder, especially if your life is filled with challenge. If your life is filled with trial, it can be hard to believe God Are you in charge of everything? Are you in charge of what's going on in my life right now? I know that it's true, but I'm having a hard time believing it right now. Or maybe that's not hard for you to believe. For some, it's easy to say, God loves me. But it's much harder to believe it. Maybe when we see our children suffering, it's hard to believe. God, do you really love me right now? Do you love these children who are hurting Or when we seem to be losing a battle against a sin that we hate in our lives, it's hard to believe you love me even now. Even when I'm fighting against this sin. Or with the Apostle Paul, or maybe it's easy to say, Jesus was cursed in my place. But we have a harder time believing. That means that all of God's wrath and all of God's anger about my sin has been taken away, has been laid upon Jesus. It's easy to say that, that Jesus was cursed in my place, but it's harder to believe that I'm not God's enemy anymore, that I'm reconciled with God, that, that I am an adopted child of God, receiving his affection as his dearly loved son. It's easy to say. Sometimes it's hard to believe. But faith involves not only knowing something is true, but, but having that conviction of our souls, living with the conviction that these things are true. Faith is knowledge passing to conviction, but that's not where it ends. Because the Bible says even the demons believe. Even the demons knew who Jesus was and they believed that he was the son of God, but they did not have a faith that saves. To knowledge and conviction, biblical faith involves trust. Trust is that next step of transferring my reliance away from myself and away from what I produce and away from what I know and away from my hustle to, to endear me to God. And instead, we rely and depend completely upon Jesus. It's to transfer the trust of my life away from myself onto another person. That God, God loves me. Because of what this other person has done. God receives me because of what this other one has done, not because of what I have done. That's trust. You see, faith isn't ultimately a belief in a set of propositions about God. Well, it's an ingredient. But faith trusts in the person of Christ, this Savior of the lost who bore the curse for me and who brings me into his family, brings blessing into my life only because of his grace that's what faith is it's knowledge and conviction and trust John Murray wrote it this way faith is knowledge that passes to conviction and conviction passing to confidence that's what faith is what we know to be true and we believe that it's true and that becomes our confidence before the Lord not confidence in myself Not confidence in all that I've done, but confidence in what Jesus has done. Are you living in faith? It's not a one-time thing. It's not a thing for coming into the kingdom of God and then we stay in the kingdom by all the things that we do. That's not the biblical gospel. But living in faith is is a means of life. Maybe it's a lifestyle with which we walk and it brings God's blessing into our lives. Knowledge and dissent and trust. It brings blessing. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be all balloons and peaceful, easy feelings. That's not blessing. But it's more like Aaron says in Numbers chapter 6, blessing is to have God's face turned toward us. Blessing is not that all goes easy, not even that life goes well. But blessing is that God goes with us, into every aspect of our lives, that we're not alone, that God's anger is fully and finally removed from me. It's been turned away because of what Jesus has done and what's left for me is being beloved. That Christ was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. That the Father's face was turned away from him so that it will be turned toward us in intimacy and love and kindness and mercy. Knowledge and conviction, and trust. That's faith. Let me close with this. Consider a little girl who's trapped on the second floor of a building that is burning. She's trying to get out of this building, and the stairway is blocked, and so she looks out a window, and when she looks out of that window, she sees her father standing below, and he's calling for her to jump. Honey, Jump out of the window. Come, I will catch you. I will, I will save you. Now, in order for this little girl to have life, to be saved, what does she have to do? Well, she has to know something about her father. She has to be able to answer the question, is my father strong enough to catch me? She has to know that that's true, but she also has to believe that it's true. That my father actually is strong enough to catch me. It's not just some playground boasting that my dad's stronger than your dad. But if I leap out of this window, my my dad is there, and he is able to catch me. But still, that's not faith. Third, she has to trust. She has to be willing to put her life in his hands before she jumps. She must be willing to place her good, her hopes, her future, her life into her father's hand if she is going to survive. That's faith. Not really able to live unless we are willing to leap into our Father's arms because we know what he's like and we believe that it's true. And I will rest all of my confidence for my life on him, not on myself. That's faith. Are you living there? Are you knowing who God is? And do you believe that it's true? And is his life the confidence of your life? Walk in that confidence today. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are the kind of God who loves us, even though you know what we're like, you know our sin, you know what's in our hearts, you know our depravity, and yet you've moved toward us in Jesus, and you've laid hold of us in the promise, and you keep hold of us because of what Jesus has done. So, Lord, enable us to walk before you in faith, knowing you, believing you, and trusting you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.